Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Tuesday, January 5th, 2010, 2010. Thanks for joining us at Future of Education. Tonight our guest is Jeff Mao, and Jeff, just come on. Jeff, we really appreciate your, your being here, and thanks for being a part of the show tonight. No problem. Looks like I'm, I'm uh, on this slide here. I'm not only the main State Department of Ed, but I'm the main department. Oh. <laughs> oh no! I hate it when I make a mistake. I think this is two shows in a row. I'm, you know, it's that afternoon rush. Yeah. You're, you're going to have to forgive me. Let's see if I can type in an A there and. and so you know, what good. Is think we we it's it's uh, so goes Maine, so goes the nation, or as goes Maine, so goes. There the nation. you go. So we you're think we are the main department of Ed. How's that? That that works. <laughs> Okay, everybody. Well, we're sure glad to have you here, and we're glad to have Jeff here, and this should be a lot of fun. Jeff, um, you got a good audience tonight. Uh, people very start of a, a new year, and um, I'm sure that you've been particularly busy of the holidays. But I uh, appreciate your being here, and I didn't get a slide deck from you, but you did send me the link to a presentation that you did. Um, and it's uh, the point of learning. And I've got it up in a share. So if you want to go through that, uh, share my desktop. It's a PDF, and I couldn't bring it into to the system. But I can. And Leonard has a question about um, uh, State Department of Ed. If it's OK, Leonard will wait till the Q&A to address that. But Or if Jeff reads and feels that as a part of the deal. Yeah, I guess, um, real quick, the the, uh, the state of Maine is not organized into intermediate units, as I understand them in Pennsylvania, which is um, we basically just have school districts and the state, and there's uh, kind of complete independence between the two. So uh, while we do provide state aid, we simply set standards, and then uh, it's up to the local school departments to choose their own curriculum, choose their own books, decide how they're going to do their business. Um, so there is a, definitely a kind of a local control flavor to the state of Maine. Um, and we don't really have intermediate units, as I understand them, in Pennsylvania or you know things like BOCES in New York or anything like that. So those of you who are indicating that the audio was choppy, are you hearing Jeff okay? And am I coming through now okay? If so, give us a green check. Terrific. Yeah, sometimes you're actually chopping. I'm I'm losing it a little bit here and there as well. Yeah, I wonder why that. I'm, I'm going to turn my microphone volume up and hope that that makes a difference. So, Jeff, oh, um, uh, when, did, when you did you come, come to Maine? Maine? Uh, I guess I came to Maine at least related to the to the MLTI program in the summer of 2002, right before the full launch of the seventh grade deployment. Um, yeah, I, I'm picking up an echo now. I don't know if that's because you turned up your mic. Well, no, I've turned my mic off, and I'm I'm hearing that from other people as well. So maybe the system has a little bit of an echo. Okay. Give us an indication if it's still taking place. All right. Well, hopefully that's a little bit better. I'm not hearing it myself anymore. Okay. So anyway, I I arrived back in Maine. Uh, right at the beginning of the 2002 launch, and that's when I joined one of the public school districts as the IT director. Um, I had a, a long association with the state simply because I went there for college, and, and I married a Mainer, and so I've got in-laws living in Maine and whatnot. But I'm not a, uh, a Mainer, as, as they would say. I'm definitely from away. But I did rejoin the Maine school system, so to speak, in the fall of 2002, uh, and I spent two years in the local schools before joining the State Department of Ed team uh, helping with the project and other state ed tech directives. Um, I can see Greg's asking where I'm from originally. Originally, originally, I was born in New Jersey, but uh, pretty much grew up in California. But as Californians say, I'm not indigenous. And in Maine, they say I'm not uh, a Mainer. So <laughs> I, I guess I originally hail from New Jersey. Uh, and why does that matter? Well, I guess in Maine, it, it seems to have this thing about being, you know, born Maine. And in California, very few people seem to be indigenous. Everyone comes from somewhere else. And so there seems to be a little bit more uh, 
pride to the fact that you're actually born and raised in California or born and raised in Maine. Jeff, what we know now is the Maine's Learning Technology Initiative. What was that called in 2002 with the launch? Uh, it's, as far as I've known, it's always been the Maine Learning Technology Initiative. In the statute, it is originally referred to as the Maine Learning Technology Endowment because the, uh, the legal uh, vehicle that created the program to begin with, uh, one of the central founding pieces of it was a, uh, a financial endowment piece that was supposed to be a place where uh, the state government was going to park, I think at the time, about $70 million that it had in surplus and then seek additional private funding to continue to bolster that endowment so that eventually the program itself could become fully endowed, which would, you know, hopefully fund it in, you know, forever. Uh, as folks know, if you kind of go through the history of the economy, so to speak, uh, it wasn't long after 2002 when the economy took a little bit of a digger, not quite as bad as it's doing right now. Uh, and so the legislature was not able to squirrel away that money into the endowment, and we ended up just basically paying the bills cash on the barrel. Uh, and we've continued to do that since then. Uh, the endowment itself technically legally exists, although there's no money in it. Uh, I'd love someday to figure out a way to, to kind of fill it up with a bunch of cash. And I, I, you know, my math tells me if we had about $650 million in there, that that would actually draw enough interest on a kind of three-year rolling 5% uh, draw that uh, we could actually endow the program and, and not have to pay for it every year um, with, a, with a general appropriation and local funds and whatnot. So the program started with providing seventh graders with their own device? Right. So in the first year, the, begin the, program, the program was basically conceived in its first rendition as a seventh and eighth grade program. In year one, they deployed one class year's fleet of machines. Uh, teachers prior to the school year, so it was really late spring when the teachers saw those devices. And then over the summer, they shipped in devices for schools to have ready for the fall launch. And uh, the following school year, they did that again with a second uh, class year fleet, so an additional 17,000, 18,000 devices shipped out to schools, which are often kind of in the old MLTI speak referred to as the eighth grade units, although I think technically speaking, the second fleet of machines were not handed to the eighth graders, they were given to seventh graders because the rising eighth graders took the same machine they had in the seventh grade year and used it again in the eighth grade year. Um, so for the first two years, it was kind of a two-year rollout. And then once that was finished, that same fleet of machines stayed in service through 2006. And then in 2006, we refreshed the entire system uh, and shipped all new equipment for the seventh and eighth grade, continued that on until just this past summer. <clears throat> and we did another refresh, replaced all the 7th and 8th grade equipment, and then at the same time, uh, as a state, we were able to move forward and bring on about 55% of Maine's high school students as well. So 55% of Maine high schools are now one-to-one -one, uh, under the auspices of the program, but actually beyond those 55% of Maine high schools, there are a number of other schools who are one-to-one, -one, just not under the official kind of umbrella of MLTI. Uh, some of those schools have invested in alternate equipment through other, you know, equipment vendors. I think there's a large consortium, I don't know if it's large, but I think there's a, a handful of schools who have kind of built their own consortium and are using a product called, you know, one of the netbooks, I forget which one. And I also know a number of schools have actually purchased retired MLTI laptops and have deployed those to their students. And, and most of those tend to be decisions that were made around, you know, just various financial challenges. Uh, the MLTI program is a an annual cost, and so for some districts in this current climate, didn't really feel like they could make a four-year commitment against that uh, that cost model. So lots of good questions coming up in the chat, and we'll try and uh, follow them along. Um, I, I guess the uh, I, I'm interested a little bit in the history. We don't have to spend too much time on it. But Seymour Papert was involved. Is he still involved? Uh, unfortunately, at this stage, Seymour is not actively involved. He's, I would say he was involved in spirit. Um, as many people know, a couple of years ago, he was involved in a, in a terrible accident in Vietnam, or I think it might have been Cambodia, um, where as he was stepping off a, a curb, he was, he was hit by a motorcyclist. And so he's, he has um, suffered some severe head trauma. And so he's still in Maine living in Blue Hill, um, or Mount Blue... Blue Hill, not Blue Barber's on. She can tell me. I'll get the two mixed up. Anyway, he's living in Maine still, but he um, 
he's not uh, he's not fully himself. You know, I think he's he's uh, fully functional on the inside, but he has a very difficult time expressing himself um, as a result of that injury, and so he's not been actively involved since then, unfortunately. So, what was Angus King's role? Angus's role, I think, was the role that. And, and the reason why, when folks ask me, you know, have other states done this, and, and the answer is always no. And Angus's role was he was the um, the political might that made it happen. So, you know, the I think that that Seymour provided the um, kind of the the philosophical and conceptual model for what could be done, and it was Angus who made it happen. And so Angus at the time was the governor. And so he saw the value to it. He saw the vision of what could be possible. And from there, you know, I think as most people know, what it really takes to make something of this significance happen, it takes a lot of leadership. And it takes someone who's willing to uh, kind of stand in front of the arrows and take some arrows, um, you know, fight with the press, fight with the public, work with the legislature uh, to try and push forward an idea that he saw that at the time I think many people didn't understand. I mean, if, you, if you've spoken or heard Angus speak, he'll tell you stories about things like letters and emails he received from people saying things like, you know, if you want to help Maine kids buying a chainsaw, don't buy them a laptop. And, you know, so there was definitely a certain degree of kind of pragmatic main, Mainer uh, thinking out there around, you know, what, what's really going to help these kids today? Is it going to be a laptop or a chainsaw? And so Angus, Angus's role really was to provide that political oomph and leadership to make it happen because uh, it did require funding. Right? In order to get the funding, um, we needed to pass that through the legislature. <clears throat> and so literally what Angus did was to, um, you know, like any politician, kind of knew the pulse of the legislature and who was in and who was out. And uh, from what I understand, was able to, to sit, essentially take those who didn't, didn't want to support the program pulled him into his office and kind of said, you know, what don't you like about this idea? Uh, because you're not leaving this office until you do like this idea, you know, and, and literally traveled around the state uh, talking to the public and to school leaders and others about the vision that he saw. And if you've ever had a chance to meet with Angus, you, you know that the reason he made it to office was because he is not only extremely smart, but extremely charismatic. And I think um, that leadership that he played there was really critical in making things move forward. So I have this perception that in 10 years or 15 years, every student's going to have a laptop. We just know that. So, uh, and that we, that we will look back and say that it was significantly transforming of the educational environment. Is there compelling evidence from your side that that's the case? And how do people respond when you present that evidence? Um. I think it's what's difficult to do with the kind of the evidence piece is that the, a lot of people who are who are seeking the, the evidence are seeking something that is as simple as a bar chart that kind of shows a little bar and a big bar and the little bar being before and the big bar being after, and then those two bars representing something that you're looking for an increase, and likewise they're looking for something where they'd like to see a decrease and they want to see a big bar and then a little bar, and it's very difficult to come by that kind of evidence because I think as we know, for those of us who kind of work in the education technology field or just in education in general, the introduction of a technology and that technology be it a book, the blackboard, the ballpoint pen, that alone is not what drives learning. Right? What drives learning is how you leverage tools, uh, the, the interaction between the teachers and the kids and, and what we often will tell folks about the program is that the, you know, the most critical and most important thing in a classroom is still the teacher. It's not, it's not the box. It's not the computer. However, what the computer brings to it is, um, you know, significant tool set that provides functionality that really was never there before. And I think that's kind of the transformative aspect of all of this. So, when when we look for the compelling evidence, some of the challenges are that the tests that everyone looks at, and this is true even, of you know, I was just out in in the Far East uh, at a couple events and. There were a lot of discussions of, of data, you know, from, from OECD and looking at these PISA test things and all of this stuff. But all of those were just simply these statistical analyses of various countries' tests that usually measure kind of 20th century knowledge. You know, as I said to the group, if it's something you can Google, 
then it's not the kind of thing we need to be measuring anymore, right? Because if you can Google it, then when you need it, just Google it, right? If you want to know when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, Google it. The challenge then becomes, okay, now I got 647,000 hits. Which of these are correct? That's a skill that's a little bit harder to measure. Uh, it's not that, you know, the 1492 part, it's, you know, can I trust the, the, uh, the results that I got when I Googled it? So, so that makes it a real challenge to, to get this notion of kind of compelling evidence uh, because what people are, tend to look at are not necessarily the things that we're trying to change, right? So we, we kind of we focus a lot on the, the classroom practices, what do teachers actually do with kids, uh, not necessarily on the, the numerical outcomes on high-stakes tests, which of course everyone focuses on. And we're not here to say that we don't think that we want to see increases in test scores. On the other hand, what we do often talk about is the fact that the tests need to change. And I'm not so sure how to change the test at this stage, but I think the tests definitely need to change. Jeff, I think for me it would be significant to have an understanding of how the educators feel. I mean, are you getting responses from educators who predate the program and have been through this? And what do they say? Do they feel that this is uh, just another change, or do you get the kind of passion that this has changed significantly what I do? Right. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting when you kind of look at the, the implementation of the program and the time, um, leading into, say, the third year of the first deployment, so that would have been uh, fall of 2005. At about that time, I think we had a lot of folks who started questioning and asking that very question, which was, is this a four-year-and-out program? Is this thing going to be over? Because we all know that in four years, that contract ends, and then, you know, if this is going to continue, the state's going to have to muster up another big chunk of money and go through this whole bid process and get legislative approval, and is this really going to happen? And at that stage, I think we had a lot of folks who started kind of, um, you know, hunkering down, and, and some of them maybe didn't quite think it was going to happen, so they kind of started backing off and others just kind of coasted. And so you kind of had that third year implementation dip, as it were. And I think, you know, as we went into the process of asking educators, well, what do you want us to do? You know, I mean, those of us at the center of the system all firmly believe that it should go on, but at the same time we said, well, we do still need to ask the field, what do you think? I mean, I don't want to go through this whole bid process and, and work it through the legislature if nobody actually wants this thing to continue. And so as we started asking teachers, and principals, the overwhelming answer we would hear from them was absolutely. And, and one teacher I know, for example, who teaches in my home district, said to me, you know, if this program goes away, I'm going to leave teaching. So I, I can't do it any other way anymore. I can't imagine it without these things. And if you take these away, I'm just going to have to get out and do something different because I'll know what I'm not able to give to my kids. And so I think it's, you know, it's kind of some of that anecdotal evidence in those conversations with teachers and principals that really kind of gave us the support and the confidence to say, okay, then let's go ahead and go, let's move ahead and go forward. And, you know, fortunately in 2006 when we did refresh the system, we again asked schools, you know, here's a form, sign on the bottom line because if you want in, you've got to sign this agreement form. And 100% of Maine's middle schools signed on again. Uh, and then again, this past year, in this, you know, leading into the summer of, of 09, we did the same thing and said, okay, middle schools, do you want in again? And then we asked high schools, do you want in? But this time it's on your local dollar. Right? We're going to pay for your teacher machines. You're going to have to pay for your kids' machines. And at that time, you know, we got 100% of the middle schools back. And now, as we said before, 55% of Maine's high schools signed on the dotted line, which I think at that stage, again, was a huge statement from the practitioners and the schools in the current budget climate to say, I'm willing to spend my school's local budget dollars, $242 per student, on this program and make a commitment to pay for this $242 every year for the next four years, even in this budget climate, because I believe this is the right thing to do. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it was it was a very reaffirming uh, move. You know, we didn't get all the schools, but then again, in this in this economy, the fact that we got 55% was pretty huge, particularly because those schools who didn't get in the program, I didn't hear any of them say, well, I don't want to do this because I think it's the wrong thing to do. It was typically, I'm not going to do this because I just don't think we can afford it right now.
Jeff, has anybody captured that feedback from the principals and the teachers, and, and as someone in the chat says, from the students? Is that available somewhere, to uh, either video clips or uh, quotes from them? I don't think we've got anything captured in any formal way. I think this is some of the things that we've been discussing lately, and one of our greatest challenges is we're not good at marketing, so to speak, um, you know, with the Department of Ed. And so we haven't really done a great job of trying to to collect that in any real way. You know, a lot of it was literally just we were hosting meetings all around the state and meeting with dozens and dozens of teachers and principals and just asking the questions in face-to-face -face sessions and asking what do you think. Um, and we didn't really do it through any kind of formal document, documented process. So we don't really unfortunately have that. We've been talking a lot about, you know, our capacity to try and produce some more kind of videos and things that, that do have some some statements from folks, but it isn't significant um, as far as our capacity. You know, it, it's it's one of those things we can spend the time and energies on creating the marketing stuff, or we can spend the time on working with our teachers to help them do the the actual work in the classrooms. Of course, the classroom teacher always wins. Well, it's been fun to watch the comments from Harold and Mayner and Lisa. Um, and uh, if it might be interesting to actually consider doing an event like this just around that kind of feedback, because I hear the same thing in Indiana from the open source classrooms. You know, people who've delayed retirement said, "I, you know, I wouldn't teach without this. You know, I wouldn't teach without having ubiquitous computing." Um, so I'll put that in my hat and, and look to do a little organizing there. Okay. okay, quickly. I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? Well, I was. I was going to say that you know, and I don't. I'm thinking back. I don't know. There's no. There's no such thing as a transcript. I guess we we've had a couple of public hearings at the legislative level, um, and people did submit written comments and then usually made verbal comments. And I I'm assuming that probably somewhere in the officialdom of state legislature work, there are those written comments that people submitted at the public hearings about the program, all of which were very positive. Uh, for the most part, you know, every once in a while you get one or one person out of 50 come in saying, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. And usually the justifications had to do with this is not a good time to spend this kind of money. Uh, but uh, so, and I don't know how easy it is to get that stuff. I've never tried to dig into the, the legislative archives. Okay, quickly, what's your focus on professional development been? Uh, the focus on professional development, I think, has always been on trying to change teacher practices because, you know, in our current models that we're using and really trying to promote, it's 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 really around this this pretty simplistic model, but very powerful model that was developed by Dr. Ruben Puntadero that just talks about the ways in which we use technology in uh, well, in our context within education, but you really could apply it to any scenario. How is how are you using technology? And <clears throat> looking at that and seeing that um, you know there's four different basic models. One is the bottom end of the scale, simply substitution augmentation. And substitution is pretty easy and explanatory. You know, you're you're using technology to substitute and do a process that you've always done. You're just now using technology to do it. Um, and I think this is where we often see the other technology initiatives that haven't really gone anywhere. Um, you know, you see kind of these early pushes years ago of, you know, gee, teachers need to have a website. And so they teach teachers how to use Dreamweaver or something and they make a web page. And what do they put on the web page? They just put a copy of the assignments. So there's kind of like a syllabus, class expectations, and maybe a calendar. And again, what they've really done is simply provide the exact same information. They've just posted it somewhere else as opposed to handing it out on paper. And so you've just kind of substituted. And what we're really concerned with there, of course, is if that's all we do, then um, we haven't fundamentally changed the classroom. We've just kind of made it electronic. And I think back to, I think it was in the late 90s, I remember Alan um, November talking about the notion of informating, you know, this idea that if what you do with technology is simply do what you've always done, then nothing's going to change. You've got to start taking that information that you can now grasp with a computer and with technology. and you know, get some value add out of that. And so what we're looking at really is the processes and the process of teaching, the process of learning, and how can we help teachers leverage the technology to change the way we do it. And very often that just involves doing <clears throat> the kinds of things that teachers have always expressed they wanted to do 
but just couldn't pull it off because of a variety of reasons, whether logistically it was just too challenging uh, because the resources that they needed weren't available or because the capacity to provide the levels of feedback in a timely manner just weren't possible uh, or feasible. You know, and so sometimes some of it can be relatively simple from that perspective that when you show somebody the things that you can do, uh, they don't look at it and say, well, gee, I, you know, that's not rocket science. Um, you know, and sometimes people are kind of surprised because they're looking for something where if you were to do it and then, you know, an outsider walks in from the outside, they would say, like, gee, I don't even understand what's going on. This is so advanced, so rocket science. But instead, it's, well, isn't that what we've always done? And, it's, and it is true in a sense that, yeah, that's kind of what we've always done, but we've never been able to pull it off. You know, and that may be things like being able to provide feedback to students when they need it in a timely fashion that isn't in lockstep, you know, which is kind of the traditional model. Turn in your homework, I'm going to look at it tonight, and tomorrow you're all going to get a response at the beginning of class and I hand it back to you. And, and instead being able to, to provide that feedback exactly when they need it, when they want it, whether that's because you're available via electronic, you know, instant messaging or, or who knows what. Um, and so I think it looks like Steve's trying to pull this up on the screen here. You can see that substitution up to redefinition, and it really is talking about how we uh, how we can start to modify tasks in significant ways that changes the way in which we do the the instruction and the learning to defining completely new tasks uh, that weren't really possible before the technology. So with the PD, that's kind of the the large umbrella view of it. When it really comes down to it, you know, the focus on the PD then is done contextually within a particular, sometimes it's within a particular content space, but sometimes it's more uh, focused around kind of teaching styles and then we leave it to a certain degree, although, you know, obviously we would prompt and work with folks on this, but uh, trust that, you know, you can have a room of math teachers, science teachers, and English teachers together and you're all talking about blogs or using some sort of a, like we have a program called NoteShare where you're able to share a document live and have multiple authors, kind of like a wiki, except that you don't need a web server for them to say. Um, and how you can leverage that tool and then within the context of their own content area, they can start to apply how they might use it. And then so with our trainers, it becomes more of a facilitated coaching model with them, just as we often encourage those teachers to do with their students. Right? So, um, you know, in a traditional classroom setting, you know, the idea is that the math teacher or the science teacher is still the content expert, um, but rather than being the source of the information, you know, sage of the sage, let me tell you what you need to know, write this down, there's going to be a test tomorrow. It's more a facilitator and a guide on the side, so to speak, helping students uncover that information, learn that information, discover it, explore it on their own. And the teacher is more on the side, helping facilitate that movement along the way. And of course, in your, as you're doing that, uh, you're doing it in different ways with different kids, and that's that differentiation, and that's where the technology often plays a role because it allows you to do that differentiation more easily because kids can be doing independent things and you don't necessarily have to, to build it all out and have 17 different handouts for 17 different kids in the classroom kind of thing. Jeff, uh, is home access still a part of the program? Home access is still a part of the program. I think one of the, you know, one of the keys to the program is this notion that um, that schools are required to let kids take them home at night. So there's an expectation from the department that kids are able to take these home because until they go home, teachers often don't make significant changes in their practices because if what you're left with is interacting with the computer in kind of 30 to 40 minute blocks, it just doesn't allow the time for that kind of depth of, of kind of playing around and, and uh, exploring that is necessary to try and delve through some of this stuff. Uh, so, of course, that then often necessitates the need to have Internet access at home. Um, we've never been able to, as, as a state, provide Internet access for students at the home level. I mean, that's a cost that we simply can't bear. So there are a couple different strategies we've been employing to try and help facilitate that. One of them is that Angus King, after he left office, formed a foundation, and his foundation will pay for free dial-up and discounted DSL for any student who qualifies for free and reduced. Uh, and his foundation independently will pay for that for those students. Um, and then beyond that, of course, just as a, as a matter of kind of state government, we are constantly working on trying to improve broadband access 
in general across the state, which is a very, very rural area. Um, and we're, in fact, right in the midst of <coughs> another bid phase, um, bidding out new transport and internet services for our statewide network. And so we're very hopeful that that will all result in, in positive things and greater access to schools. And, and again, that then leads to if you can have better broadband services to schools, it means that in every community, there is a broadband connection that, that, that the various providers are providing, which makes an anchor tenant, which then leads to greater capacity on the telecommunications industry side to provide consumer broadband service to homes. So there's kind of a, a rolling process there. Jeffrey, are you using any open source software? Sure. There are a number of titles on the, on the MLTI devices that we pre-install that are open source, and that, that would include, for example, in the in the last number of years, we've been pre-installing NeoOffice, and that was um, really because in the, a couple of years ago when we were running iBooks, you couldn't really run OpenOffice effectively. Um, it was difficult to X11, so we used NeoOffice. And then um, now we've actually reached a licensing stage where schools are just going to have to pre-install that on their own. Um, and then uh, one of the titles that we've really spent a lot of time working with with a lot of math teachers is called GeoGebra. And that's kind of a kind of like uh, Geometer Sketchpad, but more, right? It's, so it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, tool for math teachers to be able to use to, to do both kind of geometry construction work, but, but even more so than just the geometry construction. It does a lot of other powerful things. And so that's an open source title. Um, and that's on, the, uh, that's on the image. And I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm missing off the top of my head. But I can see in the participant list there are other mainers on who I know probably can think of them off the top of their heads too. Um, so we do have a couple of open source software. Oh, FreeMind is on there, which is a you know, kind of a concept mapping or mind mapping tool. Um, we have an FTP tool that is an open source project, although again, the FTP program is mostly there just in case someone needs it, but it's not really an instructional tool. Uh, but that's, we're using CyberDuck just so we have an FTP tool. Uh, so we definitely are using them where it seems to be um, valuable to us. You know, really what our goal was when we, when we look at trying to provide a software package was to look at the functional outcomes and the functionalities that we wanted to be able to provide to students and teachers. And, that, and when we went out to bid, that was framed in the RFP as, you know, show us in your bid what software you're going to include that, are going, that will support and help facilitate teaching and learning of and then we kind of listed it off. You know, teaching and learning of writing, teaching and learning of mathematics and data analysis, uh, you know, reading, uh, research skills, and so on and so forth. And then from that, <coughs> then that grows out into a suite of various tools that says, well, gee, if we're, if we're looking to support writing, we need uh, text processing tools. If we're looking to support data analysis, then we need various data tools like spreadsheets. And, um, you know, we have both uh, the Pasco and Logo Pro software, both of which are the, kind of the two major uh, data pro vendors, and their data packages are pre-installed, and you know, and all of those things. So, as we go through that kind of litany of various things we're trying to be able to provide from a functional standpoint, if there wasn't a commercial title that was provided as part of the bid package, then that's oftentimes when we went out seeking an open source version that. Uh, that had that functionality since we didn't have budget to then purchase additional software, particularly because if, if I'm looking for commercial software of some sort with some functionality, even if I had the money, I'd have to go out to bid, which is a gargantuan process. So sometimes it's easier if there is an open source equivalent that we can, that we can get at no cost, then uh, that makes it a lot simpler. Jeff, I want to I want to move us to questions, the Q&A session. But before I do so, I want to ask one question that you're going to smile at. How are the teachers sharing their uh, success techniques with each other? And how much is social networking sort of a part of your vision for professional development? So I think we've always had this notion right from the start that we needed to try and leverage social networking. I think even before we had the term social networking, back when we simply just called it collaboration. You need to have an online collaboration environment. That's what we used to say. Um, and we've always wanted to be able to do that. We've, we've really tried and, and honestly tried and failed, tried and failed, and tried and failed a couple times in trying to pull that together. Um, and so we're in the midst now of I'm not sure which version of it, but yet another attempt to try and move that along. And, and, uh, and you know, right, so right now our current 
endeavor has been to really see if we can leverage the Learn Central space at LearnCentral.org. Uh, when I first saw that space, you know, recognized very quickly that um, you know what people really have glommed onto and found to be kind of an easy to use but highly functional interface has been Facebook. And when I saw Learn Central, I saw that as wow, that looks to me like basically Facebook. And I think I even said to some of the folks at Illuminate, gee, this is like Facebook with a different blue, right? Because it had so much of the same basic functionality, but the advantage was that that system was built specifically for education. So the audience and the the, uh, the community there are all educators. And then there were some other things that were built into that system that were specific to education, which I also found to be useful. So for us, that really is a very important piece because you know one of the powers of having the same computer deployed across all the schools with the same base load, you know, obviously schools will add on top of that, but the same base load is this idea that if somebody creates a great process, a great teaching tool, a, a, you know, a, a document, whatever it might be, there's really no reason that everyone should have to recreate that, right? Um, because, you know, it was in the days past, you might say, well, this is what I do in my school with, you know, our computers in the computer lab. And, and nine out of ten other people say, well, that's nice, but we don't have that program. You know, and so the hope is now we can say, well, you know what, gee, I've got, you know, I just did this with software that was included on the MLTI laptop, so everyone must have this. So it, it becomes less of a have and have not, and we can really try and leverage that equity piece. Um, so the social networking piece we think is really important beyond simply just the capacity for people to share information, but also because I think we have seen with the, you know, the quick growth of, of systems like Facebook and MySpace and some of these other very common social networking sites, um, kind of the power that those kinds of environments provide to the user base in its ability to share information. You know, I know that you know, one of the conversations that is probably happening in, in hushed meetings at places like Google, even though people might think that Google is probably sitting there thinking, boy, are we rich, we've got the world in our, in our pocket. I think probably what Google is saying to themselves is, holy crap, what's going to happen when people stop searching and they simply post to their Twitter account or to their Facebook or something, hey, what's the best recipe for such and such? You know, like I do it all the time. I go into Google and I just put in, you know, uh, you know, chicken a la king recipe and up it comes and I follow the first or second link and I get a recipe. But instead, I'm going to say to my Facebook page, anyone got a good recipe for chicken a la king? And boom, within five minutes, I've got people who I know and trust saying, oh, hey, use this one. And all of a sudden, Google's out of business because their traffic is gone. So there's great value to the social networking space because it adds beyond this notion of having a lot of information out there, but human sorters, which you know Google is always trying to kind of, and, and all the search engines always try and achieve uh, some way of of creating uh, you know, a search capability that's a little bit more human and not just simply keywords. Right? So I think there's a lot to it out there, and it's just a matter of, we're very much at the forefront of it and trying to figure out how it's really going to develop. But um, the sooner we can get our educators involved in those spaces, the better, because you know, the longer you wait, the harder it is to pull them into it. OK, so I'm going to shift uh, gears a little here to the Q&A. If you've got a question for Jeff that hasn't been answered, go ahead and put it back in the chat. Or you can raise your hand, which is the little hand with the green up arrow icon that's at the bottom of your participant window, if you want to take the microphone. Jeff, uh, one question was, uh, can students bring their own laptops to schools? Um, I think that varies from school to school. I see these conversations occur all the time on some of the techie listeners in Maine about what do you guys do about students who bring their own devices? You know, whether it be that an iPod Touch or whatever, anything you can get on the network. And there's always these conversations about, well, we, we let them do it, but we make them register with us so at least we know what the device is, so on and so forth. But in, in large part, of course, in, you know, in all of our middle schools and now over half the high schools, there's really no reason for the student to bring their own laptop because they've got an MLTI-provided device. And from a teaching and learning perspective, it's that much easier for teachers to know that uh, all the kids have the same tools, so if they want to be able to do something with the kids, they know that the kids have that technology and it's available to them. In the school systems where they haven't gone one-to-one, -one, I think it's really an open question from the school-by-school -school basis as to how those schools have chosen to set their policies. I think definitely with the, uh, the advent of the laptop program, there's, there's far more uh, acceptance of the idea that if you know kids have their own personal technology, they can bring them. 
But I don't think, at the same time, I don't think people have just simply said, yeah, just bring it in, we don't care, we, do whatever you want. There's definitely a lot of conversations about what is the best way to manage this, both from the perspective of, you know, providing adequate, uh, you know, antivirus protection to your network, to um, just kind of being able to know who these network entities are so that if something does happen that is uh, less than savory or whatever, that they have a way to, to respond to it as opposed to just, you know, spinning their wheels with this random unknown device creating havoc on their network or, or doing something that is considered inappropriate. Um, so it's really, it's a school-by-school school thing. We, at the state level, we have no control over that. It's really every school makes their own decisions. So, Jeff, a few questions about uh, sort of long-term tracking. Um, one was, are you following the graduates uh, through any kind of social networking to get feedback from those who experienced the program some years ago? Um, and are you tracking any kind of uh, formal and informal learning with the students? Do, can, do you have, uh, can you give us a short description of what kind of feedback mechanisms you're using to kind of gauge success? Um, I think this is one of our greatest challenges that we have not really gotten a good um, solution to. You know, as far as kind of tracking the graduates, there are very few of them out there. It's really only, I think, now two class years of students who are in, you know, first and second year in college now uh, or, you know, pursuing other interests who, who would be out in the real world, so to speak, beyond high school, uh, who would have been part of the first couple of years of, of the program at the seventh and eighth grade levels. Um, but we have not, at the state level, we don't really have a good tracking mechanism for that, particularly because it would have to be a uh, voluntary opt-in, um, as opposed to, you know, we, we obviously can't mandate what a, what a citizen does. Um, so we don't really have a good way to do that. I think that one of the things that will be interesting to see, and I've, I've heard some feedback anecdotally, and, and this may lead us to try and figure out a better way to do this, is that at the minimum within, say, the University of Maine system and, and State of Maine colleges, you know, the, the state college system, um, is to see if there's some way to try and measure or keep track of their experiences because at least they're still students in a, in a Maine school system. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to some of the professors at one of our state universities and they have mentioned to me and said, well, you know, when I, I do have students who are both from Maine and not from Maine and Clearly, these kids from Maine who uh, experience that program, when it comes to, say, interacting with some new technology, some new thing, they have no fear of it. They may not be any more skilled, but they, you know, they definitely said, we can definitely see who was from Maine and who was not, because they just kind of dive in and start trying to figure it out, whereas very often students from out of state take a little bit more hand-holding to get them into it. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's a very anecdotal, but it is, an interesting idea to kind of start trying to look at is to does has the program helped to try and uh, create a more independent learner when it comes to those kinds of things because you know, that is one of the outgrowths we'd love to see is you know lifelong independent learners uh, as opposed to someone who's just kind of waiting for the teacher to spoon feed them what they need to know. Jeff, a couple of questions about uh, where to go to get information on one-to-one -one initiatives. Uh, suggestions, advice in terms of content, focus areas. Uh, if someone's interested in researching one-to-one -one or starting a one-to-one -one program, where do you suggest they go first? Excuse me. I should have a glass of water with me. Um, that's a tough one. I don't know that there's necessarily any great online home that is like central to repository of do's and don'ts about one-to-one. -one. Um, but I think there's, you know, some of the places obviously to look would just simply be to look at some of our websites just to kind of see some of the stuff that we do have up there. So, um, you know, the, the primary main government site, which you'll find at uh, mlti.org, has on it some of the things to look at there. And, and of course, if you're not a state, you'd have to kind of simpl simplify and make it a little bit simpler. But we actually have posted copies, for example, of our request for proposals. Um, I think reading through those documents do help to try and frame out um, what it was that we were looking for, and I think that in itself can be a, a nice planning document for others to look at and then, you know, recontextualize for their own systems, uh, be it a school or a district or even a state. Because um, I think some of the things that we've, we've done in that process has really been to try and examine not simply the box, but 
what are all those things surrounding the box that are necessary to help try and guarantee some levels of success. Uh, there's no way we can guarantee full success, but I think we've definitely tried to, to recognize where we needed more support and where we wanted to make sure we didn't leave a gap. Um, from the PD perspective, we've just this year begun a new blog at main121.org. It's literally main121.org. I think that's a nice place to go, and you'll, you can even listen to the recordings or, you know, log in every Thursday at 3.15 or 7.15 and join into some of our webinars where we're doing professional development for our teachers to get a sense of what we're doing and join into that community. And, and then, as, as we said, we are starting to try and it's very, very fledgling, but we're starting to try and pull some people together in the Learn Central space. So we did establish a group. It's not very active yet, but hopefully the more people that get in it, the more active it'll get. Um, and if you simply search Learn Central groups for MLTI, you'll find us. And you can join in there as well. And, and sometimes simply just connecting through the social network with other people who are in the business to get some of their real-world experiences. And I think as you talk to folks, you'll hear every opinion in the world about it, uh, but if, as you talk to enough of them, I think you'll probably start to get some central themes about what's been valuable, what hasn't been valuable, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, you know, I would say that <clears throat> for those who are looking at it, you know, some of the simple advice I would give is to make sure that they focus on their educational goals and not fixate on the technology. Uh, if there's going to be a champion and someone who's spearheading the organization and the planning, make sure that person is not your IT director. Um, and I say that having been an IT director. <laughs> uh, it's not an IT project. And so the kinds of things that we tend to measure for success have nothing to do with education. Um, and so you want to make sure that you don't let us solve a technical problem when what we were trying to do was to achieve a human solution. Um, so those are kind of the quick words of advice. But um, I think those are some places. I know that there's a, there's a group called the One to One Institute. You can Google them and find them. They, they do maintain a database of sites and schools that are doing one-to-one, -one, so that may be a place to go just to find, again, find other people to talk to them. Um, and then I know that that group very often hosts a luncheon, one day luncheon, um, at COSIN's annual conference. It's typically a one-to-one -one luncheon, so that's another place to network with people who are involved with one-to-one. -one. You're going to be at ISTE this year in Denver, uh, we're planning to bring our entire professional development crew out, including myself. So we'll be out there for the whole event, and we'll be doing some pretty big workshops, um, some large-scale workshops and presentations. And so that might be a chance for folks, if they're going to be there, to kind of meet us and, and have a chance to talk. And we can have a beer over somewhere and, and talk all you want about um, how we did it and what we would do and you know, a ask and answer questions. Looks like John might have a question. John, I'm going to give you the mic. This, this is going to need to be our last because we're at the top of the hour. John, while you're thinking about taking that, you click on the uh, larger. There you go. There you go. Yes, uh, forgive me for um, sounding a little confused, but I guess in reading, um, are you okay on this thing is making a lot of noise in this end? Yeah, you might want yeah, to mute your speakers. Um, they're on the laptop, basically. I can turn the speaker down. Maybe that will help. You're good. Just, You're good. Just go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I guess because of a course I was taking recently to the university and, and doing a little research on this one-to-one -one as it involved uh, Philip Negroponte, um, where you could buy the EXO uh, laptop uh, for $400, you'd wind up getting one and he'd give one to the underdeveloped countries and how that whole thing kind of unraveled and then not um, strangely see how best time most of the stores now have all of a sudden come out with notebooks that if you got $200 you can float your own boat. Um, it seems like this um, destructive technology or destruction of classroom technology hasn't closed the gap, it's increased the gap. Now that's my own personal sentiment and I'd just like your clarity maybe on it. So I, it's an interesting question. I had a lot of folks say to me when we were pushing away last year at trying to, to drum up more participation in the high school one-to-one -one efforts in Maine, and I had people saying to me, you know, Jeff, all you're doing is increasing the digital divide. 
you know, my response to that was prior to the expansion this fall, there were some 2,500 students in the state of Maine who attended a high school that was doing a one-to-one -one program. And today there's, there's over 25,000 students going to Maine high schools that are doing one-to-one. -one. So I haven't widened the gap. I've closed it. It's just that some people are on the wrong side of that fence. Um, I think Negroponte's work with the $100 laptop and, and whatnot, you know, that was a very different program, it was very different goal, um, really was not pointed at the American market, it was really designed to try and work with developing nations. Uh, it did kind of unravel, and I think there were a variety of reasons that it did unravel, um, but um, you know, no need really to go into those now, but I think that you know, what we have seen, fortunately, is, as Steve mentioned before, you know, in some five, ten years, this may all be kind of a, a quaint old discussion uh, as prices and whatnot come down. And, and I think that's one of the probably the, the greatest outcome of all of his work was it drove the industry to a new price point. Um, I think what we're going to see, of course, as you start to follow the markets is the price points you saw last year are going to disappear and the prices will rise. And the reason they're going to rise is because the PC industry actually cannibalized their own profits in trying to sell a $250 netbook. Um, and the public also started to realize, despite all the best efforts of the, of the industry to tell you that the netbook was not supposed to be a laptop, it was supposed to be a companion device, that uh, nonetheless people bought them as laptops. But they cannibalized their own profits, and now they've discovered how much money they didn't make, and they're really struggling as a result. So I think you're going to start seeing prices come back up into the four to $600 range, which gets right to the price that we essentially paid for for our MacBooks. Um, but again, it's because I went out and, and helped uh, the main schools together. We all bought close to 70,000 machines. So if you can pull together a PO for 70,000, I'm betting that you'll find a PC vendor out there who will give you a good price. Hey, Jeff, I want to be sensitive to your time. We'll, we always try and stop on time. We've gone a couple minutes over, and, um, and sure appreciate your being here tonight. Um, uh, let's give Jeff a round of applause. I'm using the clapping hand at the bottom of the participant window. I think we could have easily done two or three hours and, and still not feel like we felt like we'd scratched the surface on this. But so interesting to hear you talk about this. And uh, I made lots of notes for myself of things that, ways in which I might be able to contribute by you know, running shows. Uh, and, and some others have had some really great ideas. Um, please do look at the uh, events we've got coming up. It's on the screen. Uh, thanks again to Illuminate and C. Bloom. C. Bloom, our book sponsor. Jeff, thank you for being here tonight. Really enlightening. Lord, I'll, I'll, uh, I was trying not to follow the text too carefully because talking and reading at the same time sometimes leads me to disaster. <laughs> but I've copied and pasted the text chat here, and I'll try and kind of filter back through this, and if there's something that we didn't really get to comment on, I'll see if I can put some of it into writing, and maybe I can email it to you, or maybe on the site there's a place for me just to post that. Yeah, you can, we can actually post it on the Learn Central event page. Uh, in the in the text there, but again, if you uh, there should be no guilt here. If you walk away from this and you haven't answered everything, well, there will be other times. Um, I do want to make a quick note. We are going to be at ISTE uh, doing EduBloggerCon again, which is Saturday, the 26th of June, the all day free all day unconference on educational technology, and then ISTE Unplugged. Uh, if you didn't get accepted to speak at ISTE and you want to speak, you still can. So we have a, a place, a wiki, where you can sign up in a presentation area and you can not only present, but it gets streamed out through Illuminate. So uh, thanks again for being a part of uh, Future of Education. Thanks, Jeff, for being on. Thanks, everybody, for participating. We'll stick around for a few minutes for those who'd like to in the chat just to, to keep talking. But Jeff, I want to make sure you feel that you can go. I think it's uh, after nine your time, and uh, you deserve a break. Okay, well, thanks everyone for having me, and I uh, apologize again for being a little late tonight. No, thanks so much for coming on. Okay, well, good night, everybody, and uh, I think probably somewhere in there is my email address. I can stick it in here. And <clears throat> since I work on the public dime, I don't worry about it too much if people email me. Um, so if you do have questions, feel free to send me an email, and um, I'll see what I can do about trying to get an answer for you or uh, schedule some time to chat on the phone a little bit if we have to. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for being so generous, Jeff. Yep, anytime. My famous last words.
Okay, for those of you who'd like to, we'll stick around for a few minutes, a uh, short post-show. We don't have um, a lot of time. Uh, Jeff's email is in there, but I'll put it back up again. And I was scribbling like crazy, lots of notes from, from my side. Um, I think it would be really fun to have a program just on uh, talking to those who feel like they've been changed by this program. You know, my history with open source software led me to Indiana and does each year. And, uh, you know, I hear the same sentiments that I, you know, I've delayed my retirement or I would never teach, you know, without these tools. So it would be kind of fun to have a show maybe to talk about that and to um, kind of showcase those successes. Um, look, for, look for ways to actually uh, formalize that uh, kind of feedback. Um, and then I loved Carol's idea of um, doing shows for middle school or high school students and having them actively participate. And that's a fun one to follow up on. So if you have other ideas, feel free to email me. I'll put my email in here. And if you would like to hold a show on something, do let me know because that's part of what Learn Central is all about, is uh, helping people run webinars. And uh, you can do it for free and that's our goal is to make this a vibrant platform for this kind of learning. And it looks like we're going to have some fun in the next couple of months. Deb says, what are my thoughts about 2010? <laughs> so I'll, this is very interesting. I've bought five netbooks. Um, some for myself, uh, one of which actually is a tablet netbook that I use as a, as a reader. Um, and uh, I just love them. And um, I, I've given some to a couple of my kids, and I just think they're a brilliant device. I will tell you also that uh, I got a Droid phone. And uh, the phone is more like a computer than it is like a phone. And that's really interesting to me because that whole platform and, and maybe moving up a little bit to a tablet-sized device is, I think, going to be killer. Yeah, it's uh, Android. It's the, well, it's what, what Google announced today is a version of the um, that Droid software that's on my phone. It's a slightly improved version, and they're on hardware. But I bought the I have the one from Verizon because my service is with Verizon, and I got a you know a deal on it, obviously. And um, I've just been stunned by how much it replaces my yeah. The fun thing about Android is it's available on all the carriers' platforms. So Android is an open um, operating system that Google's developed for cell phones. So, if uh, in fact I'm going to do a show with Columbus State University, where they've been developing their student information systems and all their student programs in Android, because any student with any cell service can have can get an Android phone, and uh, that makes a lot of sense because the the platform is not limited. Um, should be very interesting to see how that goes. It's a brilliant idea and concept, and I will tell you that. Um, you know, I just love my phone. Now, you know, people who have iPhones say the same thing. Uh, I think the big difference will be that the Android platform is open, and so potentially uh, it doesn't matter what carrier you're using, you can use the phone. And of course, uh, they're not, you're not they're not locking down the applications in the way that uh, Apple does. Yeah, I've done some shows with the Indiana folks. Uh, if you want to email me, I can get you the direct links for them. <coughs> I also do pretty regularly uh, a show on open source, the state of open source in education, and um, have some recordings of those that are that are fun to listen to as well. With Mike Huffman from Indiana and Kevin McGuire, um, and some guys from Canada from a company called Revolution Linux. Uh, you might find it in future event. I can't remember, but if not, uh, definitely email me and I'll get you the links to them. Yeah, Revolution Linux is a great company. So, Greg, <laughs> I'm not anytime soon that I know of, but I will be at uh, Q. I'm going to be at ISPE. Uh, those are fun places for people to, to get together. And um, uh, if you're not going to be in those places, I do have a calendar on my blog of where I'm going to be. Not that. Not that anybody needs to necessarily meet with me, but it is fun to meet up. 
Yeah, just go to futureofeducation.com and the full archive list of sessions is there. I have seen sugar on a stick and um, all neat project. Well, we do these live, the Classroom 2.0 workshops. Uh, and if you go to workshops.classroom20.com and you want to propose holding a workshop in your area, I do them for free. But we have some requirements. They have to be freely available to anybody who wants to come, which means finding a venue that's free to use. But they're a lot of fun, and they're kind of a pro bono effort to help educators learn about Web 2.0 and social media. So workshops.classroom20.com. I'll put it in the chat. Okay, you should be able to copy in this chat. I've always been able to, Greg. Uh, as a reminder, we, there are recordings for this will go up tomorrow. And there will be a recording of the chat. And if you feel that you really want the chat right now, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat conversation or the whiteboard. You don't need the whiteboard tonight. But you can save the chat conversation before you go if you'd like. So I've always been able to copy and save from the chat, so I'm not quite sure what that is. Leonard, I'm going to give you the mic in case you want to ask a question. And then Deb, after you. And I've got to go in a couple of minutes. I have a family dinner to go to. So Leonard, I see you've turned your mic on, but I'm not hearing you yet. Yeah, well, there you uh, are. Here I am. Okay, good. Well, actually, I think all my questions were answered. I just thought that Jeff was an amazing uh, speaker, an amazing person, and I think this was just an incredible webinar, Steve. Thanks oh, so much. Yeah, I thought he was great, and thanks for coming, Leonard. You've been consistent in your attendance, and much appreciated. I'll be around. I'm glad. See ya. See ya. Deb, did you want to say something? quick. That sugar project is fascinating and um, a person came to my school and we experimented on our old laptops and our desktops. But then we went to my thin, my thin client and it almost booted. So they're looking into it. Cool. Which is wicked cool um, with regard to the fact that it's, you know, the thin client would be just so much less expensive than a desktop. And the collaborative the whole sugar thing, I, I saw it on Math 2.0 and followed up and tried to get and got in touch with the lady that did the presentation. But um, I would think it would be something to look into again maybe in 2010. Yeah, so she's, I'm trying to remember her name because I Caroline Wheat. Caroline Wheat. That's Meeks? right. Weeks. And, and she's working with uh, Bender. What's his first name? Walter. Uh, Walter Bender from the OLPC project, right? Um, IAEP. I think he was he was with something and quit it or left it or decided right. to go a different direction. But it's a huge. Somehow I got on their mailing list and just watching their collaboration is beyond. It's science fiction. Their intelligence, their programming skills, their collaboration is just an immense study in itself. It's brilliant. Well, how fun. Which yeah, is fun. We should hear a lot about that. And I didn't mention it because it's not finalized yet, but we think we've gotten permission from MISTI to hold an open source con. So an all-day conference, uh, also on Saturday before ISV, for free uh, on open source software. And that would really be fun. And, um, uh, I would imagine we'll get some people um, b uh, because we've you know we've done such a good job with um, gathering in different places um, for K twelve Open Minds and some other conferences. That if we could do that at ISTE, we'd have a great audience. I need to ask this question, but sometimes I feel like a dummy in all of this. And ISTE, I don't believe I'm going to be able to go to ISTE, but if there's a way you can kind of handhold some of us out here that are able to connect. Cyberly, 
that would be awesome. And you do do that amazingly well, but I'm just asking if you would, like, when things like ISTE come up or open source comes up or any of these things where we can't travel to you, if this could be an open forum, it would be awesome. Yeah, so we try, so we've tried to see the difficulty with an unconference is it's very hard to broadcast. You know, because it's very much an in-person event. But mm -hmm. we're going we're going to broadcast content twenty four not twenty four seven. We're going to broadcast content this year from ISTE the whole time. So there should always be something from ISTE that you can watch if you're not able to attend. And the dates? That's uh, June 28th through July 1, I think. Okay. And ISTE is what used to be known as NEC. NECC. No, I know. Where and is it this year? It's in Denver. Hmm. But you're right. I think this is really fun. It's fun to have these virtual environments. And I think more and more, you know, my goal with Learn Central is to have lots of things that you can do virtually and just show the potential and the value of these, this environment. And, um, and so I think you're going you're gonna to see more and more as, the, as that interview series there shows. Um, you know, th there are several weeks where I'm doing three shows a week, which should be pretty amazing. OK, I'm going to give you the mic, Andrew. I don't know if that's what you meant, but you can, there you go. OK, can you hear me? Yep. yep. Okay, uh, my name is Andrew Chalpin. I'm from New York, and I teach a bunch of classes. I actually teach special ed full time, and I also teach a bunch of computer classes for my local teacher center, and also for um, for a local college, Dominican College. I teach two grad courses, computers in the classroom type classes. And um, my question to you is, I'm going to be having a class that's going to be online. It's my first online class. We only meet three times. The rest is online. I would like to um, have my class link up with, with the Illuminate, with the, with the Web 2.0, and figure out what would be valuable. But this is perfect, what we did tonight. Um, do, do you have anything? I see your schedule over here on the right, on your, what is it, on the, on the whiteboard? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Do you have anything that you can think of? Um, my classes can run any time between, because you know, we have the luxury of being at home, uh, any time from mid-January until um, I believe it's at the beginning of March. Well, I'm just going to put my email, email address, address in. Okay. Let me hear myself echo, okay. but that's fine for okay, the moment. No, 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 that's okay. So I'm going to put my email address in there. Just email me. I've actually got to go. I promised my family that I would not be late for dinner tonight. But email me, and we'll work something out. And uh, that'll be fun. So, uh, Andrew, I'll look forward to getting that from you. Okay, uh, you guys have to clear the room in order for us to be able to have the recording process. So I don't mean to kick you out, but I actually have to. And uh, have a great night. And uh, sure, appreciate everybody coming and really love the association with you. So thanks for another fun evening. Good night, everybody. Bye, Noich, Louise.